so-called the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. The book of Daniel is a totally accurate book of history. At the time that it was written, in the 6th century B.C., it accurately foretold the sweep of human history from that day until our own day. It is a totally accurate book of history past. I believe it to be an accurate book of present history and certainly of future history. It may well be said that Daniel is the key to prophecy. And prophecy, after all, is simply history that God has seen before it happens. And it is just as unchangeable as history of the past. Now, much has been written for 1,600 years to question the authenticity of Daniel. Uh, that is a whole other story, one about which some of us talked a little bit last Wednesday night. But something I didn't point out then that, that uh, is, is quite noteworthy is this. There are those who have said since uh, the 3rd century A.D. that Daniel was not written in the 6th century B.C., but very late uh, in the 2nd century B.C. And it was written during a specific time of persecution in order to encourage the Jews who were rebelling against a minor Greek king named Antiochus the Great or Antiochus Epiphanes. But one thing that the critics of Daniel never seem to quite come to grips with is the fact that also in the book of Daniel you may find the year in which Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on the cross. And that is 200 years in advance of the late date that its critics claim it was written. Of course, the basic reason that they claim Daniel is not authentic is because of a, uh, an unsupportable presupposition that God did not have anything to do with the writing of the Bible. But I believe that Daniel is totally accurate. Now, the time in which it was written, in the year 606 B.C., very remote from us, long ago and far away, a young man named Nebuchadnezzar became co-ruler of the Babylonian Empire along with his father. And in that year, in very short order with great success, he marched off defeating an older and wiser king who had a great army, Pharaoh Necho, of Egypt. And on his way back from Egypt, he stopped long enough to conquer Jerusalem. During the time of the conquest of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar received word that his father, Nabopolassar, had died. But before he hurried home to receive the fullness of his power, and now as sole ruler of the world's greatest nation. He ransacked the temple, taking much gold, many valuable and 
choice precious items to the Jews along with a number of the best and the brightest people that Israel had to offer as his captives and his slaves. In prophetic terms, the defeat of Egypt in 606 B.C. by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar began what in biblical prophecy is often referred to as the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles given to us in detail in Daniel are to be characterized by four worldwide empires, with the Babylonian Empire being the first. Now in Daniel chapter 1, this book tells us how the young man, Daniel, who became one of the key leaders in the history of one of the ancient world's greatest nations, rose to such a high position. It is a beautifully written and moving account. It is brief and it is condensed and it also gives us quite well the historical setting for the whole book of Daniel. We will see how Daniel was called, prepared, matured, and blessed because of his steadfast faithfulness to God. Daniel, by the way, had uh, the best education of his day and very probably a better education than either Moses received in Egypt or Solomon received in Israel. He is a giant of a man. He is, in many ways, an absolute contradiction because he is, in public life, a man who endured uh, change. We'll talk more about that in, during the course of uh, this message. But he did it without raw ambition, without watching his own backside, without destroying the careers of others, without walking over the lives or the hearts of other people. And one other word before we get into the book. Daniel wrote this book. Several places in the book, he reveals that he himself wrote the book. The Lord Jesus Christ affirmed that Daniel was the author of the book. And so it is no surprise in chapter 1 that in a very few words, he skips right by what had to be as devastating an experience as a young man or an older one could ever go through. Daniel was of the royal family. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was a kinsman of the house of David. He had known nothing but privilege. He had known nothing but prosperity. He had known stability. He had uh, everything that anybody could want. And in a very short period of time, the ruthless and ravaging Chaldeans led by the Neo-Babylonian ruler Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the world as he knew it. Everything that he knew was gone. He was probably somewhere between 12 and 15 years of age, and it is another subject for another time, I suppose. But often in the Scripture, 
The people who have had the greatest impact have been the young. I would say to you, if, if you are young, that it matters a very great deal how you spend your youth. You may know better. You know, a lot of us in our growing up years knew better than what we did. And some of us have lived long enough to realize what precious treasure was wasted as opportunity was let go because we knew better and we always knew we would come back. We know that in this exile, Nebuchadnezzar took probably up to 8,000 people, the best and the brightest of the young Israelis. But only four of them are recorded. We don't know what happened to the other 7,900, but we do know what happened to four of them. They are the ones who made the book. The book of Daniel is all about prophecy, but as I mentioned this morning, it is also all about character and godly living. It is a rare resource. It is a treasure. It is as practical as any book in the Bible. So go with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel. This morning, this evening, we will consider Daniel chapter 1 as we look at the faithful exiles. In verses 1 through 7, here is a new life, a new life. Follow with me if you would. I begin in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and some of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. In verses 1 through 7, here is a new life. To put the period of time that Daniel covers into context, it was a Sabbath of years. When God had brought his people into the land of promise, he had claimed from them a Sabbath of every week, a day of rest. He had claimed for, from the land a Sabbath 
of years, a year in every seven where the land could rest. And he had claimed from them loyalty and fidelity to him and to his truth and to his revealed word. In the ensuing 490 years, the people had followed many false gods. The contemporary of Daniel who preceded him in death by a number of years but whose life overlapped him, Jeremiah uh, said of the people in the land, you have as many gods as you have towns, O Israel. And what God was doing during the 70 years of this first exile was reclaiming a Sabbath of years, one-seventh of the 490, because of their unfaithfulness. They had followed the Canaanites into idolatry. They had degenerated morally, and now they were paying for it. Now, the captives that were taken by the Babylonians from all of the nations they conquered served uh, a number of purposes. Among them were these. Uh, They could be like hostages. They took the young. They took the best and the brightest. And they took them captive to Babylon. And in that way could have some leverage of control over the provinces to help stave off any rebellion. Secondly, they needed them. Babylon was growing by leaps and bounds. She had the need for a bureaucracy far greater than she could possibly staff, and it was in her own best interest to have the bright ones from the various nations in her service. Thirdly, they could become loyal subjects and help perpetuate the empire by being loyal to the empire and helping to oversee in their later years the empire's affairs in their native land, help keep their native land under control. Also, they were certainly indoctrinated. Now, when they brought them into their period of training, I think you can see that organized uh, education goes uh, far back, and at least as far back as the Babylonians, this most definitely was higher education. This was graduate school. And when they were brought into that from their native land, now remember, these are boys. They're somewhere between 13 and 17 years old. They're boys. Their parents are dead. Their siblings are gone. Whatever they loved, whatever they knew, it is all gone and they have been carried to a distant land. They have no hope of ever going home again and they are alone. The first thing that they were done, that was done to them was they were denationalized. They were given new clothes. They were given new belongings. They were given new names. They were put in a new environment. Secondly, everything that reminded them of their religion was taken away. And it should be observed that they used the young, they used adolescents, for they found that their probability of success was far greater with the young than with adults. 
in this environment, far away, alone, captive, hostage, at the whim and mercy of their enemies. One boy, Daniel, led three of his friends early on and often as he lived to lay his life and their lives on the line to stand up for what they believed against a world empire. What a beautiful example. They may have known Jeremiah's prophecy. At least it is indicated further on in the book of Daniel that one of the reasons Daniel was laboring so much in prayer for his people was that he had discerned in the book of Jeremiah that after 70 years God might restore them to the land. They had no reason to expect to live that long. They knew that they personally could not go home. But they were willing to risk everything in order to be true to God. In the verses that we have read, it sounds as if they were treated very well. And indeed, for Daniel and uh, his friends, they were treated well. For it was ancient custom for the king to provide the same food and the same drink that were consumed at his table for all of those who served him personally. And so when they were offered what they were offered to eat, it was the best the world had to offer, period. There was nothing better anywhere at any price. They could never, ever hope to do any better. These boys were to have the best education in the world. The Chaldeans who preceded the Babylonians in power were highly intelligent people. They were learned men. The Chaldeans from the knowledge we have gained of them through archaeology, were active in astronomy, in all of the natural sciences, as well as in occultic sciences, not as a matter of religious obsession or with worshiping of uh, demonic deities, but they were after anything that would unlock the secrets of life. And so they were active in astrology and magic and the occult. These boys had their names changed. You know, obviously, these four came from godly homes because every one of their names signifies a special relationship to Jehovah, to the God of their fathers. The name Daniel means God is my judge. He was given the new name Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar means Prince of Bel, B-E-L, one of the prime deities in Babylonian religion. 
Hananiah means beloved of Jehovah. He was given the name Shadrach, which means illumined by the sun god. Mishael. By the way, anytime you see a name that ends in E-L, for the most part, it came to us through the Hebrew and it has something to do with God. Mishael means who is like Jehovah. He was given the name Meshach, which means who is like the sun god. Azariah means the Lord is my help. He was given the name Abed-Nego, which means servant of Nego, who was one of the Babylonian deities. All of this was a part of the attempt to change them. But for these four, they resisted that change, and they are evidence that you cannot always change the heart by changing the name. Their names indicate that they did indeed come from godly homes. In verses 8 through 13, here is a new temptation, a new temptation beginning in verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. By the way, the great uh, ancient father of the church named Jerome, in his uh, ancient commentary on Daniel, wrote when he came to verse 9, by this we may understand that if ever under pressing circumstances holy men are loved by unbelievers, it is a matter of the mercy of God and not of the goodness of perverted men. Verse 10, And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths whom, who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. An obvious question for us. In a similar circumstance, would what you understood to be the ways and the will of God be as important to you? as it was to them. Consider, they knew that they were there to stay. You know, you could build a very strong case by arguing that there's only one restaurant, they only have one menu, 
And this is all we're ever going to eat, whether we die next year or 50 years from now. You might as well get used to it now. Now, I have no doubt that among the reasons they resisted this was the presence of uh, animals in the menu forbidden to them to eat as good Jewish boys who had never violated the dietary laws that their families still observed. Why not just go along? But this small group led by Daniel knew the Lord. They knew that the food was bad for them because the word of the Lord said so. They knew beyond this, and this is another reason, no doubt, that they resisted, that the food they ate was first consecrated to pagan deities. These boys had probably never traveled far from Jerusalem. The only temple they knew had been desecrated, and no doubt the ancient city of Babylon in all of its glory was full of magnificent temples to many deities. They would not compromise for somehow in their young lives they had become more concerned about obeying God than their fear of the king. Apparently, most just did go along. Only these four made the book. Because of their faithfulness, they shunned a thousand excuses to do what was right. That provides me a good opportunity to say this. You know, by the time that most of us reach adolescence, we have learned how to rationalize anything we want to do. Now, that's human nature. But as Christians, we need to recognize that it is perverse human nature and we need to come to grips with it. I don't want to chase this rabbit too far, but I want to ask you to consider your last serious temptation. What was it? The one you resisted. Let's start with one of those. What was it? I promise you that if you think about it long enough, you will find a way to build an extremely convincing argument for doing it. We are programmed to do that. In our humanity, we can find a reason to do whatever we want to do. Let me take it a step further. If you think about it long enough, you will do it. I don't care what it is. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how disgusting it is. If you cherish it in your heart long enough, you will do it. You are what you think about. And what you are will eventually work its way to the surface. They shunned a thousand excuses. They very easily, they could have built a case 
that the rabbis in Jerusalem probably would have accepted for why they had to go along at certain points. But remember this, that God blesses those who are faithful in little things. Dr. Ironside said, the only way to go on with God is by being faithful in little things. It was because of their carefulness in maintaining a good conscience that these Hebrew young men were given special enlightenment. God does not commonly impart his secrets to careless people but to those who are devoted to his interests, God's interests. Daniel shows in his discussions with the king's officials, he shows no rudeness or fanaticism. You know, I have heard uh, many conservative uh, evangelicals and Baptists preach about Daniel and yet there is a sizable uh, representation of those of us who call ourselves uh, Baptist who have the kind of view of separation that would have not allowed for many of the things Daniel did do. But Daniel shows no rudeness. He shows no fanaticism. Rather, he appeals to authority for permission and finally, he received a positive answer to a limited test. Notice in verses 14 to 16, here is a new appearance. So he, that is the official of the king, listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter, and that's not a good translation, by the way, than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. They won their point and they were allowed to continue with the new diet. It might be observed that it was not the thought of promotion that caused Daniel or his friends to refuse the king's food. Now, they may have known the scripture, but they didn't know nutrition. They didn't know that they were going to look better. They did not know that they were going to seem better from the outside. They were trusting God to take care of them. But it was not promotion that motivated them. Rather, it was their desire to be obedient. They had every reason to believe that if they were discovered not eating what they were told to eat, they would die. And yet they were willing to resist the command of the king because it would mean to deny their faith. And rather than do that, they would risk even death. They had everything to lose and nothing to gain by this. Everything to lose. And yet they were willing. And at the end of the time, they did look better than all of the others. And they were on a polyunsaturated, low-fat, low-carbohydrate, high-boredom water diet. A new appearance. 
Notice in verses 17 through 20, here is a new wisdom. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one, was found. Like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and conjurers who were in all of his realm. At this young age, the hand of God was already on the life of Daniel, much as it had been on the life of Samuel at a young age, hundreds of years before. After three years, they were still faithful and they were head and shoulders above all of the others. Like them, we need to resolve in our hearts that when necessary, we will speak up, stand up, be consistent, and trust the Lord for the consequences, whatever they may be. They are now probably close to 20 years old, 18 to 20. They enter the king's service, led of the Lord, gifted by his grace. And we see that Daniel is appointed to special honor. Verse 21 is such a magnificent sentence by virtue of the things it does not say. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. In verse 21, here is a new longevity. Underline that. Daniel continued. Remember it. Write it down. God honors those who trust and honor him. What a crowning touch. This man who, as a boy, had resolved to obey God, endured for more than 70 years. In fact, uh, this verse doesn't mean that he died in the first year of King Cyrus. It just means that by the time this account was written, it was the first year of King Cyrus. For later in the book, we will notice that it was in the third year of the reign of Cyrus that he had a particular vision. The astounding thing about Daniel's longevity is that this little Jewish boy who stood up for what he believed, outlived a half dozen changes of king and three changes of empire. For he saw the change of the king of the empire when the Medes and Persians overthrew Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He saw the change of empire when Cyrus forced the Medes out and the Persian Empire 
was established. Daniel continued. Daniel, the captive, outlived the empire. Our world needs that kind of Christian today. I would say to you, I don't know where you are, I don't know what your situation is day by day, but you can make a difference, whether you realize it or not. Daniel, as far as we know, never went home. We have no reason to suspect that he went home after the 70 years, probably because of his health. He never went home. But his were the most far-reaching prophetic revelations of the Old Testament era. The book of Daniel is beautifully complete in its narrative. It is a testimony to the power of God. Daniel would never have done what he did. He would never have accomplished the things that he accomplished had he tried to do it the world's way by going along. His example, I believe, will encourage redeemed Israel during the last prophetic era called the Great Tribulation. Daniel became chief over all the wise men. Later he became third ruler of the kingdom behind only the king and the king's son. And though we do not live in his situation, we live in a moral Babylon. Can we do less no one is standing in line to execute us if we live the way God wants us to live. Compromise never serves God. I want to camp there for just a moment before we close. Every Christian knows the conflict between obeying what they understand to be God's will, being obedient to God's ways, everyone understands the conflict between that and something that they really, really want. I don't know what it may be in your life. But I will say this to you. If your affections are fixed on anything or anyone other than the person of Jesus Christ, as a believer, you are staring into the face of certain tragedy if you put that ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a lie of the enemy that God doesn't want you to have things that make you happy. It is most definitely a lie that the thing you carry in your heart that you ought to be carrying in your hands, the attachment to this world to other people. It is a lie that those things are more precious 
than he is. A little later in the first chapter of the book of Colossians, we will read the fact that when we came to the Lord Jesus Christ, God transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. That was a one-way trip. In many ways, someone who does not know the Lord can be happier than someone who does and lives in rebellion. But I can tell you that you are in a no-win situation. You will not become the exception to the rule. You belong to Him. He will never let you go. And if you get what you want so desperately, it will bring you misery that you have never yet imagined. You just think you were miserable before you met Jesus. Whatever it is, it is not worth the price. Compromise never, never serves God. We need the spirit of Daniel. We need his love for God. Of another generation, one who wrote much about prophecy made a surprisingly pertinent remark about the ethical side of this decision. Clarence Larkin, in his book on Daniel, said, As Christians, we find ourselves captive in the Babylonian life of worldliness and pleasure that surrounds us. And many of us, instead of being transformed, are being conformed to this world. We have fallen in with the spirit of the present evil age, and are living lives of coexistence and compromise, the outcome of which is a life of powerlessness and spiritual barrenness, the result of which is that we will have no dreams and visions of the things God is waiting to reveal to us out of His Word. In these days of Babylonian worldliness, let us dare to be like Daniel. May we pray. Heavenly Father, we belong to you. We love you. You have taken us out of the darkness and put us into the light. Heaven is our home. But very often, we find ourselves homesick for the old life that we knew before we came to you. Father, I thank you that no lie can stand in the presence of your light and your truth, your word and your spirit. And it is my specific prayer that in these moments,